Well, good morning, everyone. Very, very good to see you. Appreciate you being here and appreciate all of those who behind the scenes are working uh, to make all of this possible for us to be able to worship together. Appreciate each of you. Thank you for that. Um, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, and let's together this morning feed on the powerful manna of Christ Jesus, our bread of life. I want to just encourage you. Are we good on the slides, Evan? Beautiful. Thank you. Um, if you can go to the next one, I think, the first one I have in the sermon part. Uh, we were running out of time last week, and I just want to verbally come back and just briefly touch on this, um, that we as elders are hoping that each of you who normally are a part of our body as a means by which you personally grow and help build up this body, trying to continue to emphasize that church is much more than just about us and our growth, that you are daily in the word of God and praying and, and fellowshipping and abiding with Christ on a very personal and intimate level, that every Sunday as much as possible that you possibly can, you're here face-to-face -face with other believers and together we're lifting up in the fellowship of the saints his name as well as being fed by his word, that you're regularly a part of a life group um, and in that closer, smaller setting, building closer relationships, and again, in prayer and in the word, and then that there are some close friends, disciples, that you are helping make disciples of Jesus, more faithful followers, and that they are doing so with you, whether you're peers, whether you are generations apart, that you are opening the word together, whether it's walking through Mark as Chris has laid out for us, or many other ways of simply being nourished. That the word which the rest of the world and many around the fringes of the church are subverting, are deconstructing, are attacking, are breaking down in so many ways, we must continue to center our lives around all that God says. And that includes today from Romans chapter 3. Let's look together at verses 9 through 20 which people have titled The Guilt of All Humanity, The Race in Ruin, Unholy Togetherness, and my title, A Devastating and Damning Closing Argument. I want to start with just calling you to think about your theology, your doctrine, your understanding of sin, uh, from how you define it to how you envision it, affecting all of life, and then even more personally, your own sinfulness and uh, its impact. Do you see your nature in the things that we will look at today? And I just began to make a list, the propensity within us. And certainly you would say, those who don't know God will do this even more. But sadly, even those of us who do know him and have been forgiven by him can still have desire for sin the denial of sin being sin and re, we recasting it as other things, the excusing of sin in our lives, the blaming of other people and circumstances for our sin, the blindness we have, the dullness of our consciences, the willingness to overlook sin, the way we avoid thinking about it, looking at it, talking about it, and repenting of it, and the way that we tend to focus on the good we see in ourselves 
far more than the bad that is also there. Now, if you've been with us for a while, perhaps some of you are thinking, how much longer are we going to hammer on this topic? We've been at it, if you look chronologically, since October 22nd is when we started Romans 1.18. And we had a break in there of Christmas and focus on that, but it isn't, it, it, there, there can be a sense of us like, okay, God, we get it. But God's point in having yet more to say on it, one final text here, is also a way to say you don't fully get it, and we need today's conclusion as well. If we had to give some kind of outline to it, I might just break it down to say there are bookends, there's a concluding indictment or conclusion in verse 9, then a whole quoting of Old Testament passages that bring, if you want to detail them out, 14 indictments drawn from there, and then in verses 19 and 20, a circling back again to, um, to draw the resounding conclusion of really this whole section before we look at some incredible, beautiful truth in the coming verses. We could say in a way, particularly the verses 10 to 18, are kind of almost like a systematic theology that Paul has pulled together a whole bunch of different thoughts from the Old Testament, similar truths to try to press home how all the different angles are many different ways, certainly not all of them, uh, there's no talking about being dead in our sins here, but certainly there is talk about much, much else about them. If we wanted to break it down even more, we could say that some of the verses deal with the depravity of our morality or our character, the depravity of our talk or speech or conversation, and the depravity of our conduct or our choices or the paths and ways that we work our way through life. There's a lot of repeating here, a lot of overlapping, a lot of layer upon layer upon layer, almost as if to say, if you don't get it thinking about it this way, then think about it this way. If that doesn't make sense, then think about it this way. Lots and lots of different prism lights here cast upon the, the way that we uh, are wired in our sinful nature and in our flesh. Finally, as a means of introducing. Today is another doom and gloom, so to speak, sermon. It's a beatdown in some ways, but I hope, I hope, if you hear and look at today's text, you will equally look at and hear next Sunday's text in the coming verses in Romans. The day or season that we come to realize how bad we really are can feel like the worst day of our life. But when we come to understand how bad we really are and then what an incredible provision God has made for us through Christ, it can be the best day and season and time of our life if we will, in that truth, turn to Christ in faith for all he has done. So would you please follow along as I read this unit of thought that God has given us here and then... In this process, would you ask God to give you and all of us the needed grace of greater understanding? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then a resounding conclusion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, today's words from you are not all easy to hear, but they have tremendous significance for helping us see who and what we are and have become apart from you. We ask that you will continue to correct our view of you, of true righteousness, and of what unrighteousness is, that we would align our thoughts more with what you tell us in your word. So please use this portion of Romans again to purge sin from this body, from this minister, from each son and daughter of yours listening, that you would transform us to be more like our glorious, sinless, all-righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name and in his power and for his glory. Amen. So verse 9 starts this section with really a conclusion. We could have probably looked at this thought at the end of verses 1 through 8, but it really is going back at least to 2.16, where Jews are referenced there. Uh, Some would argue it goes back even to chapter 2, verse 1, where some believe that uh, God is beginning to address the Jews. But here's the concluding Thought is, are Jews any better off? Given the fact they have his law as chapter 2 laid out, given the fact that they have his oracles as early chapter 3 talked about, and know his covenant promises, are they actually any better off spiritually? And the resounding three-word answer is, no, not at all. They may know more about God and what they must live under him, but... Very few actually put their faith in the Messiah that was promised rather than trusting in their obedience to God's law. So we might say the Gentiles who had general revelation, Romans 1, 18 to 32, still defy God. And the Jews, though they have God's special revelation, ultimately still disobey God and fail to live up. Those two groups of people may look very different in worldviews, in how they live, but at the core, both suffer the exact same problem of sin and its devastating consequences. We might say, as just a simple parallel, in our day and age, we, we can think of those growing up in Christ-filled homes may have many advantages, but ultimately are not any better off, no less guilty of sin no more saved unless they put their personal faith in Christ 
for its salvation. And then he circles back around to simply say, listen, I've already proven to you, it's already, we've already charged, I've already alleged this, and I've made case after case after case, so let me say it one more time. All Jews and Greeks, regardless of advantages, everybody, in a key phrase, is under sin. Not just a sinner, not just in sin, not just committing sins, but under sin. It has the idea of under its dominion, under its power, under its rule. We are controlled by it, even though we like to think we are controlling it and we are making choices and we say yes or no to it. God is saying here, ultimately, it is our master and we are answering to it. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of the guilt of sin, the power of sin, and the pollution of sin that we all sit under. Simple example is simply being under gravity. It affects everything about our lives. We can overcome it by jumping in the air for a second or two, depends on our our ups, but gravity will ultimately prove to master us and that we don't truly conquer it or escape it. The other thing here that's maybe worth noting is this is the first use of the word sin in the book of Romans. So Paul has referenced it largely as unrighteousness and not obeying and not living up to it, but now he zeroes in on calling it that, and we'll do so toward the end of this same text as well. By definition, the failure to live up to God's moral law, to defy God's authority, and do what one wants instead. John Stott, with a little more laid out definition, the revolt of self against God, dethroning God with the view of enthroning oneself. Ultimately, it's self-deification, or the lifting up of ourselves. A very emphatic way, resounding way, to summarize the last 65 verses. And now, at the beginning of what we have marked, because somebody went through and put in chapter and verse breaks, at the beginning of verse 10, we have this short little phrase, as it is written. Jesus used it a lot, um, and Paul uses it often, and he uses it to introduce the uh, quotes or paraphrases or thoughts from the Old Testament. And what he now does for quite a length of time through the end of verse 18 is string together quote after quote or paraphrase, thought after thought from the Old Testament all together. You can see one thought of what uh, Douglas Moo says about this. I wish I would have had this one as well onto the slide, but just ran out of time. Uh, But Martin Lloyd-Jones... When they were dealing with Jews, they knew that nothing so helped their case as to be able to prove and substantiate it from the Old Testament itself. The Jews believed in the Old Testament scriptures. They were the oracles of God that had been given to them. So very well, says the apostle in effect, this is what your own scriptures say. In other words, Paul is going to make the point, you have been told this, it has been proven to you, throughout the Old Testament and throughout your history. You simply have skimmed past those things. So let me bring a few into the spotlight now for you. So we've kind of described this as 14 indictments that are drawn. 
Somebody has said, making it one of the most explicit descriptions of how depraved man is in all of Scripture in one given section. Again, we could break it down. I don't think it's crucial in, in uh, our thinking, but character, communication, or talk, speech, and then conduct, or choices, or paths. And we can't look at this long, but these thoughts are drawn from Psalm 14 and from Psalm 53, and you can just see by the red highlighting how many in these coming verses, how many of these thoughts are going to be pulled out. And it starts with, none is righteous. Again, just three words, and then reiterated to clarify No, not one. There aren't exceptions. There aren't a few special people. There aren't people that particularly live above others. None is righteous. It's not that we're not as righteous as we could be, but God's point is you either are or you aren't. There aren't gradations. There aren't levels. There aren't steps, degrees within this. You either, by God's definition of righteous, sinless, uh, obedient in every way, perfection, No one is even remotely close. James Boyce says, our problem at this point is that we think of the good we do or can do, our righteousness, as being the same thing as God's righteousness when it actually is quite different. And he illustrates it this way. Human righteousness is like monopoly money. It has its use in the game we call life, but it's not real currency. And it does not work in God's domain. Just like a business owner would not accept our monopoly money, though we may have huge mountains of it as real or valuable. The way Ecclesiastes, Solomon worded in Ecclesiastes 7.20 is, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who, in two ways, does good, meaning only good, perfect good, Um, all the good that can be done that God would want and never sins. True righteousness must meet both facets of that. One way we could say this is the key or single summarizing point of everything else that's going to be said. All of the other things flow from this one. This is the critical reason why we need Christ. We need the gospel truths in order to be saved. And this is ultimately what damns us. Verse 11, not only does man fail morally, but man fails mentally or in thinking or in his mind. And he summarizes that by three simple words, no one understands. No one truly understands God. No one truly understands his greatness. No one truly understands his holiness, not even Adam and Eve. Because, and we demonstrate it, By every time that we sin, we show that we do not sufficiently and rightly and fully know God. You might think of this, no one understands as, this is how well your chickens understand you. You think they do, but they have very little grasp of you as a being. And so we also have a very chicken-like limited grasp. Now, someone can articulate the truths of Scripture and the truths of God incredibly. Far better, somebody could stand up here and articulate the gospel far better than I have ever done in hundreds and hundreds of sermons in terms of laying out the truth and yet not really grasp it. 
still not have it in their hearts, still not be born again by it. Boyce, again, it's not that the doctrine of God is difficult to understand. It's rather we don't want to move in the direction those doctrines will lead us. So we suppress the truth about God. Kent Hughes, the more we sin, the less capable of understanding we become. And again, doesn't matter if it's a pagan Gentile never having heard of God or a Jew who has heard so many truths about him but still does not really, really understand it with the kind of depth that is sufficient. So not understanding ourselves, not understanding God rightly, all of it is wonky, and it's because, verse 12, we've all turned aside. This is yet another way that God describes sin is to turn, to wander, to veer, to deviate, to depart from a path of truth and righteousness I skipped one, didn't I? No one seeks after God, sorry. So back up just a bit, just to note. Again, these are always angles. So ultimately, even those who say they are seeking God are not seeking it by the ways that his word is laid down, are not seeking it in the depth and the diligence that is necessary for him to be truly found. Then all have turned aside, wandered away. Isaiah 53 captures this to describe us like sheep with just not a lot of intelligence, going our own way, turning away from uh, what is good and right. And this is what ultimately is moving us away from God, away from him relationally, being separated from him. And then together they have become worthless. Not worth in the sense of we have worth created in God's image, but worthless in, in the sense of what we have been created for and purposed for by God. And so Hugh's word picture here I think is good. We're fish, but we can't swim. We're birds, but we can't fly. Like our worth as being what we are in the image of God has been wrecked and ruined by sin. And then a, a circle back, very much like the first statement of no one is righteous, no one does good. Again, in the quantity and the quality that God requires for righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 captures it this way. All our righteous deeds are all the things that we see as so good, so good that God might be impressed with, all the things that non-believers simply say, I hope I've done enough good uh, before God that will outweigh the bad. What, what is pointed out here is there isn't that good that you think you have that's apart from Christ because it's all tainted with sin. You can't just remove the sin part and say, we hope God doesn't look at that. There's just enough good here. Ultimately, God is saying even the things we consider most righteous are polluted by our sinfulness, by our nature, by our inability to do it all perfectly. All of humanity then all of time, from all places and all peoples, are put on a level playing field, or the phrase we often hear is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes to the same bottom point if they're going to come to faith in understanding our sinfulness. Okay, now more quickly, we'll move through the other descriptions. Paul now moves from broad condemnation to more specific ones. 
and the, the one he chooses to zero in on, um, like he could have chosen sexual immorality, he could have told, chosen a lot of ways, but he chooses to go after our mouth or our speech. Part of that is because of what James says in, I don't have that reference, but I think it's James 3, 2, that if we don't stumble on what we say, we can be a perfect people, person. We can bridle everything else if we can just control our tongue. So it's a simple illustration of just how depraved we are. Um, but maybe most powerfully, Jesus puts it this way in talking about the tongue, the mouth, the words that we speak are a reflection of what's going on inside. And that ultimately, those things alone, if, if God used nothing else except the words we spoke, they would be enough to justify or condemn us. Um, they're that significant, that important. Four descriptions here, very quickly, that our speech is filled with death, deception, poison, and foulness or toxicity in every way. When people see a, an arrangement of order, it moves from lower throat up to tongue, out the lips, and then mouth encompassing the whole process. From Psalm 5, Paul quotes, so this is his second Old Testament text that he's going to quote from. Psalm 5, 9 describes this exact wording, their throat is an open grave, simply trying to capture it's a place that is reflecting the death and decay that's inside where those words come from, and that all of our words are ultimately laced with death and spiritual decay. Secondly, still from this text, they use their tongues to deceive. This is a particularly significant element. One, to capture how much lying is a part of our nature uh, and how we use it. And then to think of Satan as being the father of lies. And then to note also that one of the distinct things Peter pointed out about Jesus' righteousness was there was no deceit in his mouth. Significant. That lying is one of mankind's most egregious sins. Lying and deception and dishonesty. Such a reflection of Satan. Such an anti-reflection of God and his holiness. Then, from Psalm 140, the short quote, the venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. So you have just the, the picture here of the fangs and the poison of snakes as they bite, penetrate, pierce, and sink in things that will wreck and ruin the human. And then forth from Psalm 10:7. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, bitterness, worded slightly different from Psalm 10:7, but capturing the idea of just heavily filled with not only the blaspheming of God and his creation, but also things that are just filthy, crude, vulgar, spiteful toward others. In another word picture, we could say we are fire-breathing. That's how James describes us. I appreciate Kent Hughes' summary here. The speech of those without God is like the odor from an open sepulcher or grave. Sometimes it's filthy, sometimes it's deceiving, and sometimes it's as deadly as a cobra's bite. And then from here, from the depravity of the tongue, he moves to the depravity of our conduct or our choices or the ways that we walk through life and the paths that we follow through life. First, from Isaiah 59, 7, and this will really encompass everything up until uh, the last phrase of no fear. Uh, these all come from Isaiah 59, first verse 7, and then ultimately verse 8 as well. 
First, their feet are swift to shed blood. Don't think only literal bloodshed. Pat yourself on the back for not murdering somebody. But also figuratively, that we are quick to verbally cut, bite, fight, hurt, bruise, break people, particularly. And then in their paths are ruin and misery, are all kinds of painful consequences, the wreckage of lives. And we could hear from every person's story how our words and our conduct have just made such wreckage in our lives. So much regret, so much sorrow and sadness and emptiness. Verse 17 goes on with a third description of our way. The way of peace is not known to us. Rather than being at rest, tranquil, shalom with God and with man and with ourselves, we are restless, in turmoil, constantly at tension in all of those ways. Robert Haldane, such a just description of man's ferocity, which fills the world with animosities, quarrels, and hatred in the private connections of families and neighborhoods, and with revolution, wars, and murders among nations. And then I think a resounding closing description of it all that really explains all of the other ones and why those are such a big deal. It all starts, again, with our view of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This comes from Psalm 36, verse 1. But really, those first four verses are such an apt capturing of all of this, where the psalmist writes about the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear in their own eyes. They flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths, see all the overlap here, are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Sounds very, very much like Romans 1 and some of those descriptions in there as well. All of this to try to summarize together, and we've just skimmed over the tops of them, an MRI, spiritually speaking, of the human heart and the human life from God's perspective. How he sees things we think are righteous and good, our speech, as well as our conduct and lives, all of them to declare that we are far more evil and disobedient and unlike God than in ways we ever want to actually admit. And then verses 19 to 20 draw a final conclusion, and Paul ties together here the law as well as what the law means in relationship to humans. So verse 19, first of all, now we know that whatever the law says, whatever the law points out, whatever the law teaches and reveals to us, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, it reveals to anyone trying to keep it a very profound message. And he'll unpack that in more ways. Uh, Piper's description here, sin rises up in the presence of the law and shows itself with vivid colors. Towering over us, the law shows us in towering ways our inability to keep its demands for perfection. So that two things, every mouth is stopped, that ultimately man will have no rebuttal, no way to argue back, no appeal to make, nothing else. It will be settled, it will be clear in God's courtroom, 
it will be, it appears, silence. Whether every knee at this point is bowing before him, as Philippians 2 talks about, whether that is another time in another way. Uh, but every mouth will be silenced from any kind of objection. And then secondly, that the whole world will be held accountable to God. He will not parcel out any of that to any other means. And maybe that's best captured by Job in the book of Job. Now the book of Job opens incredibly in verse 1 with a description of a man who is righteous and upright, blameless, and fears God. Those are his credentials. Impressive, as Keith noted about what will people speak of us at our funeral. Those would be four great descriptions for somebody to pronounce about us. But then we know that God brings trials, allows them, Satan attacks, and Job goes through a whole long series that's all meant to reveal to him some things about himself that are not right. And he finishes in verse 40, or near the end of the book, with ultimately this, after God has spoken to him, told him to shut up, sit down, and he's going to say some things to him. And then he blasts out uh, in stronger ways than a Nebraska blizzard the truths about him. And Job's response at the end of that is, I am of small account. What do I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken. He spent most of the book speaking and his friends speaking. But now he says, I will not answer. Twice I've done that, but I will proceed no further. And just a short time later in chapter 42, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The fear of the Lord will be one of the most real things on judgment day when all are held accountable to God. Verse 20 draws the conclusion and is really the setup for what the coming verses in chapter 3 are going to say as well. The declaration that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So this text shows us both the power of sin. We've seen that starting in verse 10 and working all the way through, really verse 9, all the way through. And the powerlessness of the law. The law does not have the power to justify anyone, but only to condemn us. Because it cannot give to humans the power to fulfill it to the level that God requires. The law doesn't prove anyone innocent of wrong. The law proves everyone guilty of breaking it. The law basically says no one will make it to heaven this way and sets up the critical truths in the next verses. One final thought. The law doesn't produce faith. It's humanly impossible to keep it, and that is what makes Jesus fulfilling it and doing it on our behalf so amazing. Romans 8, that we'll come to in a few months, states this, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
And in Galatians 2, Paul's other strong defense for justification, he puts it this way. We know that a person is not justified by works of law. Three times he's going to say that in some way. But through faith in Jesus Christ. Highlighted in the coming verses starting in verse 21. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that brings us to the, the closing thought that it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. So the law defines sin for us. It shows us um, that in our failure to keep it, what sin is. It gives substance and meaning and significance and understanding to the whole concept of disobedience and sin. Romans 7, in a few months, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And then he concludes, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Two people's thoughts here. First of all, Martin Luther's. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it showeth unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed, Christ. And then Rob Ventura. The law of God is meant to show unbelievers their lost estate before him and their desperate need to be saved by Jesus. Thus, ironically, the law helps them by leaving them helpless before the Almighty. Two brief thoughts in closing about this text. So much that could be said. We'll unpack more in the coming weeks as we reflect on God's provision in Christ. First of all, may this lead us to make as certain as possible that we, that those we share the gospel with, including our own children, accept this diagnosis not just as true, and I would, I would call those of you who are here on Christmas Eve morning and evening, to recall the emphasis Chad gave us, that believing has knowledge, has acceptance, and then has the idea of casting itself wholly. So the same question sits before us now. Is this something we accept as a true doctrine about mankind in general, maybe even about ourselves, but not to the point that we are running to Christ from the wrath of God because of the condemnation that our sin has created and casting ourselves on him in faith. Here's the way Kent Hughes puts it. The first, do we have that quote? It's so long, it'll be helpful if they can see it. The first function of the law is to unmask us and show us we are sinners and this is our supreme advantage we understand at least to some extent our radical corruption. God's word strips away our emperor's clothing or self-deceit and reveals our soul's nakedness. The world system proclaims we're robed and well when we are not. God's word cries above the self-deceived crowd that we are not okay. We say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But God says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3.17. What advantage does this bring to us? Much in every way. We must each see our own nakedness. We must make use of our great advantage of truly knowing who we are, who God is, and what he wants of us as declared in his word. 
And the next verse in Revelation 3, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves in the shame of your nakedness and may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. A continuous prayer must be, Jesus, I need the salve of the gospel for my eyes. I need your white garments covering me and I need your gold that you give out in the gospel and in salvation which you granted to me in your grace and mercy. And secondly, a setup for next week. This should lead us to deep, humble gratitude for the grace shown us by God in Christ Jesus in saving us from sin's penalty, pollution, and power. I want to just encourage you, as I try to do in almost every Sunday's bulletin, to think much about God's grace in the gospel. And just one text I will take you to briefly, um, from Isaiah 53, as an illustration, over and over and over. So many songs we sang today help us do this as well. But hear from God's pure word, how Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him, imputed to him, the iniquity of us all. Just ponder that, be stunned by that, be amazed fresh by our own transgressions and sins there on the cross, of all that Christ endured and went through and paid. The more bitterness we taste in our sin, the more beautiful, precious, and delicious the grace of God tastes to us in his righteousness. And Martin Lloyd's point in closing, the only way we are not under sin is if we are under the grace of God in Christ Jesus by faith in him. Father, how we thank you for this text. Hard for us again. We're such proud beings. We think so much of ways we would rebut these declarations by you. But we thank you for revealing them to us and ask that you will open our eyes even in the coming days as we continue to perhaps to think about this, discuss it, read about it that you will layer in even more our understanding of this, that, oh, we might sweetly taste your grace ever more fully. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you paid to obliterate what verses 10 through 20 describe. For the praise of your name, amen.